Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Hi, I'm Mark Ferguson. I'm moderating a session on technical innovations in minimally invasive thoracic surgery, the process, and the future. Uh, just to give a little context, innovation, of course, is the lifeblood of uh, advancement in our specialty, and we think, can think of it in a number of different ways. Technical innovation, uh, the development of new tools, procedural innovation, uh, different methods of using tools that we didn't have before, and then conceptual innovation, new understanding of disease or pathology. And I think we'll see all of these represented in our discussion today. The important uh, point of innovation is to improve patient well-being, although that's not always the outcome. <clears throat> it can also improve efficiency and decrease costs under the best of circumstances. But there are a number of issues related to innovation, including surgeon access, patient access, informed consent, patient safety issues, costs, and what the metrics are of success. We can also look at innovation in terms of incremental improvement, building on previous knowledge, or transformational innovation. I think you'll also see those factors in the um, discussion that we have today. So let me have the panelists introduce themselves. I'll start with you, Tommy. Thanks, Mark. I'm Tommy D'Amico from Duke University Medical Center. Uh, Gaetano Rocco from the National Cancer Institute of Naples, Italy. I'm Robert Serfolio from New York University Langone Medical Center. I'm Linda Martin from University of Virginia Thoracic Surgery. So, Dr. D'Amico, let me uh, begin with you, and maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how you conceptualized, introduced, and popularized, ultimately, the concept of VETS lobectomy. Well, when I finished training in 1996, it really wasn't an entity, uh, although I thought that it could be. Um, and as I started in practice, um, I thought about ways that this could be done minimally invasively and uh, started doing open cases in the way that I thought if we could do it, VATS, we would. So I moved the anterior incision, I moved the thoracotomy incision a little anterior and did all the cases from front to back and then put a scope in while we were doing it uh, open and got used to looking at the entire field through the scope. Um, and then uh, started making the decision a little smaller. Um, and then uh, before uh, too long, it was actually being done minimally invasively. That was a four-step process that evolved over about uh, two years. And in 1998 or so, we did our uh, first and um, started looking at um, uh, collaborating with other people. Um, it was very uh, fortunate for me that there were two or three other people that were going through the same process with different uh, iterations, but 
it, uh, Scott Swanson and Todd Demme, although there were others that were doing, but they lived relatively close. We talked a, a lot about how to do it. And probably the most important factor was we decided we would try to do a clinical trial. And so we approached the CALGB and they allowed us to do a, uh, a feasibility trial for vaslobectomy, which uh, did many things in terms of uh, promoting vaslobectomy. It created a common definition, which I think was important. It helped train other surgeons, so the CLGB would, would um, support surgeons coming to our centers to learn how to do it. And most importantly, it allowed me to talk to patients in the framework of we know this is new, we have a special consent for it, we don't have to do it this way, but it, it forced us to be open and upfront that this was new. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, and as you alluded to, we're going nowhere without innovation. On the other hand, we, we can't um, subject patients to treatments that may not only not be more beneficial, but might be harmful. And so within that framework, we were, al we were allowed to uh, advance this innovation, and then other steps came along the way. Another CLGB trial on thoracoscopic restaging that allowed us to uh, assess the opportunity to do stage 3A disease. If it hadn't been for that trial, we would not have gotten there so quickly. Developed new instruments that facilitated more difficult cases, and facilitating teaching residents how to do it. And one of the things that I'm most happy about in the process was that really every resident that left over that time frame could on day one start and innovate themselves. Great, well, I appreciate the comments about the evolution of the process. I think it's very important to understand those sorts of steps to go through. I wonder, Dr. Rocco, could you give a similar overview of uh, how the uniportal mm -hmm. techniques were introduced? Well, the approach came uh, from a necessity. Um, I used to work at a sanatorium uh, in, the northern, uh, in northern Italy back in the 80s. I know I risk to sound very old, but that's uh, how it is. And uh, we had one issue with uh, draining empyemas, uh, the, the mixed empyemas that would colonize the wounds. So making three or four approaches to uh, drain, completely drain a, a TB and payment would have been really dreadful for the patient in order to control the infection. So we uh, looked at the possibility to do everything through one uh, port, one hole, and uh, we uh, started doing biopsy, uh, uh, draining empyemas, uh, uh, affecting adhesiolysis. And so that was uh, the first step to try to uh, conceive the idea they may be adopting the same approach that you would approach op by open, so with a codocranial uh, uh, sagittal approach to the uh, target uh, inside the chest, then it could be done through uh, thoracoscopic instruments. At the same time, articulating instruments came out, uh, which were uh, basically designed for laparoscopy, but we, uh, we started using that in pneumothoraces, uh, and then oh, oh, different uh, uh, minor procedure, wedge resections, uh, up to a point that uh, uh, it was basically uh, difficult to spread uh, the news of uh, this new technique uh, until 2011 when uh, Dr. Gonzalez Rivas uh, from La Coruña started to perform lobectomies and that was the, uh, another major turning point in, uh, in uh, uh, making the, the procedure widely accepted 
especially in Asia, where the favorable anatomic conditions uh, and the, uh, um, uh, even the cultural substrate made it easy for the uh, Asian surgeons to accept uh, this uh, procedure and this uh, uh, idea of uh, minimally invasive, yeah. which is a, a, a different procedure and uh, it takes uh, um, a learning curve, a steep learning curve at the beginning, uh, some different uh, eye-to-hand coordination, but uh, it, it, it's been proved by the wide acceptance right now of the procedure that it can be done, it can be done easily. Great, great. So, Dr. Serfolio, your approach, I think, was materially different in that they're describing incremental changes that led to success, and right. you made a change literally overnight in your practice. I did, and disruptive technology change. And so I think the important thing for people that are listening and thinking about innovating, I'll be more philosophic and, uh, and less granular as the process, and that is it has to be driven by something that benefits the patient. If you listen to both Tommy and Gaetano, what they're telling you is they did something that benefits the patient. If the motive of the innovation is to benefit the patient, and it's not because you're losing market share, or you can make more money or help your reputation or do something else. If it really is driven by what's best for our customer, it's going to win. I think that's an important, there has to be, it has to be being done because you see patient value. And the first time I sat on the robot, I said, maybe currently this doesn't have great patient value, but it's going to. Uh, and I'm convinced that that's true. So I think uh, robotic surgery, maybe not in its current platform, but in the, the, maybe in the XI and new platforms coming out from other companies, has incredible patient benefit. So that's number one, the motive. And then number two, I think the second most important part of innovation we haven't talked about is the team-team interaction. I think you have incredibly skilled surgeons sitting here, but we're only as good as the weakest part of our team. <clears throat> and if we can find ways to innovate that interaction, which is a little, we talked a little bit about that today, but not enough, um, that's the next part of innovation that is going to revolutionize our patients' care, is really how we work as teams, how we understand our customers' problems better, both pre-op, how we standardize the intraoperative part, which nobody does. We're really good at standardizing the pre and the post, but the intraop is a hit or miss. Um, and I think those steps in innovation is, is our future, and it's going to be incredibly exciting. We're really lucky and blessed to be in the field we're in at this time. Great. So, Dr. Martin, you're uh, slightly different than some of these procedural and technical uh, aspects, but could you describe a little bit about your work with Eris and how it was developed and introduced in your institution? So you're referring to enhanced recovery pathways, and uh, some people say this has been around for a while in terms of fast tracking, and there's some common elements there, but enhanced recovery pathways do involve a little bit of a different philosophy and include multimodal pain control, uh, multidisciplinary involvement in the whole patient experience from their journey from the clinic all the way through surgery and recovery. And this has really been pioneered in the colorectal literature, and a lot of us have heard about this from our colleagues in other surgical specialties and seen it uh, work well. And that's the evolution of what happened at my institution as it was started in colorectal and gynecologic surgery, and we were seeing really impactful changes in terms of patient satisfaction, length of stay, costs, a lot of other factors. So it was helpful to come into an institution where there was already a culture that embraced this, and, uh, and already had the framework for involving anesthesia, surgeons, nurses, all the different people involved in all phases of care. So that helped us get the program mm -hmm. up and running. Uh, but for sure, it's a, it requires teamwork, it requires compromise. 
Uh, there were certain things that the anesthesiologist felt really strongly needed to be done and certain things that I didn't agree with and, and sort of gradually adjusting our strategy was, was very helpful. Uh, and another thing that's really critical with enhanced recovery programs is that it isn't, the program that you have today isn't necessarily where you started. And it's incredibly important to constantly reevaluate your outcomes, reevaluate what's working or not, and see what you need to change and tweak with the program. It should be something that is constantly changing. It should not be one set pathway that you stick with for a long time. So we're gonna change uh, pace here a little bit and talk about informed consent and patient safety. I know Dr. D'Amico's mentioned that a little bit, but I wonder if the rest of you might comment on uh, how you obtained informed consent for what might be a new instrument, new technique, new approach, and what you think of the risk of patient safety issues when you're introducing something new. Yeah, so it's, it's the mix between standardization and improvisation. Uh, and we all want to innovate and, and be people that can change things, but at the end of the day, we have patients at the end, so safety is always paramount. I agree with Tommy that there has to be a transparency. I remember when I was going to do my first robotic case, I told the patient, and the patient said no. <laughs> it turned out to be a non-robotic case. But the next patient said, okay, sounds good. So I think if there's transparency in what you're doing and you're honest about it, that's really the only way to do it, and especially in today's age. You know, I think 20, 30 years ago was a different era and a different culture than what you can do today. Uh, I think where we have missed the boat a little bit, and robotics is an example of that, which has gotten much better in the last five years, is how we train. You can't go to a weekend course, sleep at a Holiday Inn, and say I'm a robotic expert. And so I think that we have to mentor better. I think we have to have mentorship programs. I think we have to develop coaches. We have to develop credentialing with simulation, uh, either virtual reality sims or now simulation that has metrics. That learning curve, which people can't be on because there's patients on the other end of it, can actually be, it's not that it's steep, it's that it's not steep. The learning curve takes a long time, but we can truncate that and make it very safe now. Especially with robotics, we have remote proctoring, uh, you have lots of videos or VATS where there's videos and other courses. I think minimally invasive surgery allows itself to be videotaped and then there's simulations for both VATS and robotics. That makes it much easier to train, I think, than open surgery. Any uh, patient safety or informed consent issues in the ARIS programs? It hasn't really been an issue and, and I'd say because these enhanced recovery programs at, at our institution originated as a quality initiative from our hospital. It was about making patient care better. That was the, the reason for doing it to begin with. And so, you know, everything that we do has the goal of improving, improving patient safety. So it, it hasn't seemed to be an issue where we need to get permission to do it. So I know if anybody from the panel would like to comment on the personal commitment to advancing their agenda, if you want to put it that way, in order to achieve success? Well, for sure, for sure, the, uh, uh, if I have to talk about Uniportal VATS has been uh, a personal uh, endeavor and uh, up to a point, uh, as I said before, because uh, there was a lot of skepticism. Although, if you think about it, even talking to patients, uh, one very uh, uh, easy way to obtain consent is to tell them that this is uh, the first step of any minimally invasive procedure. Uh, a single port is what you do at the beginning, you uh, perform at the beginning, and then of, of course, if you can do the operation through the single port is a, an advantage, it, although we don't have data, uh, definite data to say that, 
but uh, uh, if you don't, then you can proceed with whatever uh, uh, operative plan you have in mind. So this is, uh, uh, it is being a personal commitment, and uh, I think that goes for everybody here on the panel that uh, uh, the personal commitment is the, the, the major um, uh, factor in bringing uh, forward a new technology. And, and there's political and professional risks, uh, certainly with doing robotics. You know, people will blame you, you're Joe Robot or you're pro-robot, uh, because it's a industry that unfortunately has one company. <laughs> so there's a lot of per personal and professional risks. Mm -hmm. You have to be sure it benefits the patient. Uh, if there's any question, you shouldn't do it. Uh, but if you're totally committed to that, and you're driven to collect data and to analyze that and question it and then be honest with it, um, I was against minimally invasive surgery. I didn't see benefit for it for a long time. And actually, Dr. D'Amico showed some data. I remember going to a meeting in another paper from another institution, and I remember saying overnight, I was wrong. Minimally invasive is better, and I'm going to do it. But I needed data to see it. Uh, and now I needed vision to see that with the <laughs> robot, actually. So you always need some vision uh, on top of data. So there's a lot of risk to, to people. but. I think if you're following your heart and doing something that's best for the patient, you will eventually win if you know how to construct the data to show it. It was a little bit of a crusade early on in that there were a lot of naysayers who um, uh, didn't believe that there was going to be an advantage to thoracoscopic surgery. And I, I wasn't shocked about it. I was just surprised that it took so much longer for thoracoscopic lobectomy to be accepted compared to laparoscopic mm -hmm. procedures. which took on on right away and that was true in the United States and also true in other countries and I think part of our commitment all of us ha has been to go to other countries and try to um, uh, convert uh, uh, to more modern so Latin America uh, certainly Asia mm -hmm. uh, parts of Europe uh, where it took off even more slowly uh, than in the United States so I'm guessing for the two areas that you're both uh, talking about today, institutional commitment was an absolute necessity. I wonder if you could comment on that. Uh, yes, it absolutely was. Um, having a, a, at my institution, we have a dedicated nurse to help with enhanced, repro enhanced recovery pathways, and you know that person happens to be a superstar. I got lucky with that, but the fact that the institution was willing to fund her position. And, and that's the person that does the education for the nurses, that does real-time tracking of our results and lets us know what's working and what's not working, uh, and having just the support that we needed to, to do these things and get everyone on board, it was really lucky. And I don't know, some places are gonna get on board, some places won't. I hope as we are publishing results and showing that this can be helpful, that it will help other institutions get mm -hmm. on board. Uh, but sometimes it's just the culture of where you work. Yeah. So, sir, if yours were, your innovation was very resource intensive, how did you manage that? Yeah, you have to show value. Uh, you have to show value and you have to have administrative support that has vision and sees value and not a myopic 30 or 90 or one day because you ain't going to see value there, you're going to see increased cost. Uh, and I was really lucky to be at UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, for my first five or six years of doing robotics where they had two robotic systems, then three, then five because they start sawing, seeing real significant value and increased revenue with it. And then I went to NYU, which even has, I think, more of that type of vision. They have a seven robotic system in a smaller hospital. I think now they're about to get their eighth XI. Uh, and they're now seeing payers in the area paying more 
for a robotic operation, which really, to me, is the ultimate, the ultimate point in value that the people who pay say, we're willing to pay more because we think we can save money over time. And that's the ultimate compliment to any procedure you do. So, but the institution has to be willing to spend the $2 million to buy the robot. Just like they have to spend uh, $100,000 or whatever she's making, your nurse to drive this ERAS. So you have to be able to show value at the end of the day and quantify So when measure. you're making the argument to your institution that you need certain resources to succeed, what's the time horizon that we should be quoting totally, for the metrics? Totally depends. So you should make a business plan that should be 30 days, 90 days for some, but also one, three, and five years. So the same way you should be mapping out your own life with a plan. What do I want to do in the next month, six months, one, three, five, seven years? And I, so when I presented the first business plan to UAB, I had exactly that. We had a three-month, six-month, one-year, and a five-year plan. Uh, and some of those numbers were pretty good. Some of them actually were underestimated. But I think you have to do that. And I think you have to be able to talk administrative language, which is very different than what we talk as doctors. Uh, totally different language. Value is all about quality over cost. It's all about dollars. And you have to show it in, in things that resonate with them. So all, all of you are recognized innovators at this point. Uh, do you, anybody have an, a specific insight that we haven't touched on? It's important to the success of their innovation. I would say to pick very careful metrics and outcomes and really measure them. And then don't be willing, uh, be willing to change. Be willing to realize that you got that wrong uh, and, and really measure your outcomes in a very transparent and objective way and make the metrics both short and long term. And then be willing to talk to people. You know, all of us are very lucky. We get to travel all over the world. When you go to different cultures, you learn a lot from other people. When, when I go on trips to teach, I always learn more than I teach. And it's, a, it's an iterative process. The way we do and teach thoracoscopic lobectomy now is totally different than when I started in terms of the approach. So it's, it's not, okay, you've innovated, this operation has now come to fruition. It, it should get better every day, and everything about the operation should be uh, getting better every day. And if, and if we come up with something else that makes this operation obsolete, that's great. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot about what outcome am I trying to impact and to keep my eye on that prize and, and to see what we need to do to, to get a better result for our patients. So if changing this premedication or this intraoperative nerve block, if that thing's not getting the impact that we want, we've got to be willing to change and adjust and keep looking, on the looking out to see what's coming on the horizon, what else is new that we can do to get better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And remember that uh, whichever approach you use minimally invasive, it's very important what you do inside the chest. Make sure that what you do inside the chest is uh, up to uh, the uh, standards of uh, what is uh, oncological surgery nowadays. And make sure that those uh, uh, approaches that we are, we've been talking about are consistent with the ERAS uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, philosophy. So that uh, whatever we do actually brings a benefit to the patients. Great. All, all very good advice. Uh, we're going to switch directions here now for the last minute or two, and I'm going to ask each of you, we'll start with Tommy and move down, about what your predictions are for innovation in the future, let's say five years from now. Where do, what do you see on the horizon? Well, I think there will be a, a different platform for, for robotics. Um, I think there'll be uh, new not only new companies, but new types of instruments that are considered robotic that will um, be across the spectrum of what we do 
in thoracic surgery and other specialties, uh, not only removing parts of the body. Um, so um, things that we take for granted now that we do as well as we can, I think will be mechanized in a way that improve, improve outcomes. Um, light sources, how we use lights in, in surgery will all be different in five or six years. Dr. Rucker. Well, I think that we'll be witnessing a sort of a merging of approaches. And uh, one example is uh, a one port robotic. Uh, I think it's going to be the, the way forward. And it's, it, I know that it's, uh, um, the industry is already talking about it, thinking about it, maybe already developing uh, projects. But I think that would really make a difference in the future. Mm -hmm. So I have a different view on this. Um, instead of thinking from a technical surgical standpoint, thinking from a disease standpoint, I think we're going to see a lot of innovations and changes in how we treat lung cancer, whether that's immunotherapy, how we use SBRT in conjunction with our other technologies. But I think that is where the future is going, that we're going to either be expanding who we operate on or we're going to have such good therapies that the need for operations are different. So I agree. I was going to say something similar. I'm not thinking technical. It's the the uh, stage 1A we're going to lose in the next five years. We'll be treating it with a bronchoscope through the mouth. I think we all are ready for that. There's robotic systems that are out that are doing that and two or three coming. So that's the next three to four years. Uh, we'll be operating on people with higher stage more because we'll control their systemic metastases and have to go resect their local disease. And so those operations will be more challenging. Uh, and the whole world of immunology and immunotherapy is going to revolutionize what we're doing. And it's a great time because breast cancer's got an 85% five-year survival and lung cancer still is 18. And before all of us on this panel hopefully pass away, and I hope that's at least 20 years from now, that number is yeah. going to double. And that's the most exciting thing. That's what this is about, is my stage migration of lung cancer to an earlier stage and taking this 15 to 20% dismal overall survival and doubling or tripling it. And I think that'll happen in our lifetime. Great. Well, I appreciate those insights. And I want to thank all of the panel members for participating in the roundtable. I think it's been very informative. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to CTS net to go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.